Amen. Ladies, um, thank you. This, you couldn't have picked more perfect songs for our topic this morning. <clears throat> what is a snowflake? <clears throat> when I was growing up, it meant a feathery ice crystal that came from the sky on a snowy day. I am from Pennsylvania, so I saw a lot of them. Today, however, the term has a new meaning. The dictionary has added this definition. Quote, the young adults of the 2010s viewed as being less resilient and more prone to taking offense than the previous generations. Now there's some debate um, about where the term originated from, but some say it came from the novel and then the movie Fight Club back in the 19, late 90s but it became widely used in Great Britain after Brexit and in the United States after Trump was elected. In recent years, particularly right after the election, colleges began providing safe places. Those were rooms that might provide hot cocoa and service dogs and pillows, and they are free from opposition or harsh feedback. King's College in, in London hired safe space marshals. They are to police speaking events. In the event, any speech might contain what they considered to be offensive to the audience. College campuses have begun offering trigger warnings. Those are statements that are sent out to the students intended to warn and inform them of any possible offensive or upsetting content that an upcoming class might involve. One British paper wrote of a student union conference in which the students voted to ban clapping in case the noise made people anxious. And so it was agreed upon to use a more unifying symbol of approval, jazz hands. <laughs> These and others have led to what author Claire Fox has called the snowflake generation. But she is quick to point out that it's the older generation that is responsible for the mess. How did we do that? Well, we have been helicopter parents, hovering over our children making sure they get all the benefits they deserve. We have been preoccupied with their safety and self-esteem. Coaches gave out participation trophies and teachers inflated grades and were told not to use red ink when grading their papers. We called their baby fat childhood obesity that would lead to their premature death and their sugary drinks, kids crack cocaine. Claire Fox writes in her article entitled Generation Snowflake, How We Train Our Kids to Be Censorious Crybabies. She writes that, quote, that parents have gone to ludicrous lengths to eliminate all risk from their children's lives. And she tells the story of a headmistress in, in a British school that suggested changing the color of the school's red uniform because, quote, some research indicates the color red can increase heart and breathing rates. 
Fox's final analysis is that if we have a generation of students that cannot handle a dissenting opinion, much less a truly difficult hardship, it is because we have taught them to do it. Another writer pointed out, we have forgotten what parenting is, that parenting is not just about protecting our children, but preparing them. I wonder, what are you teaching your children or your grandchildren? Are you consumed with protecting them or are you preparing them? What are your views about an opposing opinion? Or perhaps the bigger question, what are you teaching them about hardship and suffering and difficulties? What are your views? What is your attitude about trials and suffering? If you have your Bible, would you turn with me to James chapter 1? James chapter 1. Verse 1 says this. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Okay, let's stop there. Last week, we had an introduction to the book of James, and we tried putting it into context. And we noticed that in verse 1, he makes his introductions, and then he gets right down to business. Now, usually at this time, letter writers, they would start, and they would say something encouraging. They might compliment the recipients, um, but he skips all that. And James, he really doesn't take time to say, how are you, or grace and peace unto you, like you see in a lot of the other books. Instead, boom, he starts with a command. Okay, he hits you right between the eyes with a command, doesn't he? And, and not just any command, but one, of the most, but one of the most difficult and hardest commands in all the Bible. Count it all joy or consider it all joy my brethren when you encounter various trials okay what in the world does that mean because in light of the current culture it sure sounds like crazy talk so here's what we want to do this morning last week we spent some time talking about studying our bible and uh, we talked about key words and we talked about those six investigative questions who what where when and how um, and why. All right, this week, we're going to take the keyword trials and we're going to take the command to count it all joy when you meet various trials. And we're gonna run that. We're gonna investigate this by using those six investigative questions. We're actually only gonna use five. But we also wanna understand it from within the context of the book, okay? So here we go. We're gonna start with the easy question, who? <clears throat> this is always a good place to start. <clears throat> 
who is this command to? Who is this instruction to? And we talked about this last week. We also learned in our homework, <clears throat> this is written to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. We see that in verse 1. All right, we concluded last week they were Jewish believers, uh, scattered, making this a general letter. It's not just sent to one particular church. It was circulated among the churches, and it was ultimately intended for all believers. All right, so if you want to write next to who, you can write believers. Or as he says, my brothers. He's going to use that term a lot throughout this book. Okay, this is a command to believers. Your unbelieving spouse, your unbelieving neighbor, they're not going to get this or care. Okay, our current culture doesn't get this. All right, here's our first point on the paper. <clears throat> a test of genuine faith is the way a person encounters trials. All right, now if you were here last week, we talked about this. We talked about how the book of James is going to give us a series of tests for, of genuine faith. All right, he's going to elaborate about what genuine faith looks like in the real world. Okay, and he's writing to people that have been scattered because of persecution. Okay, and so it's not surprising that he's going to start with trials. There's nothing like suffering through a trial that makes you question and wonder if your faith is real or, or to prove that your faith is real. All right, so, um, and he wants to comfort them, so he's going to address this. Here's our next point. Number two, this radical approach to trials is not natural. Okay, in fact, you can even write next to that supernatural because this approach is going to go against your natural human inclinations. All right, it's going to, it's going to require a supernatural response. All right, it's going to be the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer being able to do that, okay? All right, that's the who of the matter. Let's ask the question, what? What does it mean to meet various trials, encounter various trials? Last week, uh, we talked a little bit about interpretation. We said it was one of the components of good Bible, inductive Bible study. Uh, we didn't really talk much about that. But when you are working on the interpretation of a passage, one of the things that you can do to help is define words. Okay, particularly go back to the original language and find out what its meaning was. And another thing you can do is go to see if that word is used anywhere else in the Bible. All right, we're going to do a little bit of that today. If you notice, I have a bunch of definitions on the side of your paper. Okay, for starters... I want us to look at the phrase, meet trials of various kinds. Some of your versions may say encounter various trials. I want us to look at the word meet or encounter. It means to experience somewhat suddenly that which is difficult or bad. Okay, it was used to describe falling into the hands of robbers. Now, you can write next to that, the Good Samaritan. Okay, because it's used there. It's, going to, it's the word that's used to describe the man in the story. He, um, he encountered bandits. He fell into their hands. Okay? All right, this is a word that's used to describe a ship hitting a sandbar. Okay, in other words... In other words, um, the, uh, it means this is uh, you're walking along, you're minding your own business, and then 
you fall into something somewhat suddenly, okay? Um, uh, that's the meaning here, okay? It's not, it's not describing you doing something rebellious and sinful and then suffering the consequences, okay? Uh, th that's not really what James is talking about here. He is talking about the difficult and hard things that hit you in life unexpectedly, all right? Um, what else can we learn about these trials? Well, he uses the word various, all right? And that word means multicolored or diversified. Your trials come in different colors. They come in all shapes and sizes. They may be short, they may be long, they may be super intense, they may be slightly annoying. They are multicolored, all right? All right, what else can we learn about them? Well. Um, let's consider the next investigative question, when? When do they occur? Well, we've already mentioned they're unexpected, but I want you to notice the word when in verse 2. He says this, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various trials, when you meet trials of various kinds. All right, notice, not if you meet trials when you meet them. Here's our next point. Trials are normal, inevitable, unavoidable, and diversified, even for Christians. Um, remember he said, my brethren, he's writing to believers. And sometimes we get into our heads that if you're a believer and you're trying to live a godly life, and, and, and trying to please God that you can avoid trials. And then you're surprised when they come. Um, I know I, I did that for most of my life. I thought that if I just had enough faith and if I just lived a godly enough life, then I could avoid the trials and eliminate some of the suffering. Now, um, I, I, uh, I try to be cautious. I try to um, seek out what God would have me to do. And that has served me well. I have, I'm sure that I have avoided a lot of problems because of that. But I have to be really careful not to think that if I just have enough faith or if I'm godly enough that I can avoid trials and suffering. And that is actually the premise of the gospel, um, the prosperity gospel that is all around you that tells you that if you just have enough faith or you just have enough positivity or if, probably if you read their books and send them money, then you will have all of the wealth and you will have all of the health that your heart desires and that you'll be able to avoid suffering and eliminate that. All right, listen. James says, no, that's not what's going on here. Okay, James says the opposite. James says, trials are a normal part of life. They are unavoidable and they are diversified. All right, in other words, here's what that means. <clears throat> that means while you are posting about your wonderful vacation on Instagram and Facebook, you will have friends and you will have people in your circle of friends that are suffering. You will have friends and family in your circle that are hurting. Okay, here's what else it means. It means that no matter how carefully you read the detergent labels or the side of the cereal box, 
you are going to have trials. It means that no matter how faithful you are to clean eating and exercise and hand sanitizer, you are going to have trials. That means that no matter how diligent you are to research doctors or car seats or minivans or preschools, you are going to have trials. It means that no matter how faithful you are to tithe or serve in the nursery or attend Sunday school, you are going to have trials. They are a normal part of life, even for believers. Now, is he saying that we are to spend our lives waiting for the other shoe to drop? That we're to spend our lives wondering what's around the corner and if, we're going to, and if our faith is real? No. No, remember that James is going to sound like Jesus. And do you remember last semester when we talked about being anxious? What did Jesus say? He said, do not be anxious. Each day has enough troubles of their own. Do not be anxious. Trials are a normal part of life on this side of the garden. They are inevitable. They are unavoidable. You can be making wonderful, godly choices and still have trials. Hear me on this. You can be super moms doing all the right things and still have trials with your children. James says, when you meet various trials, okay, these trials are not necessarily the consequences of your personal sin or weaknesses or bad choices. Now, don't get me wrong, those exist. There are going to be certainly times where we bring on our own problems because of our sinful choices and our sinful behavior. But that's not really what James is talking about here. Okay? That's a different lesson. All right. James' desire is to prepare the church to practice genuine faithfulness in the real world. Okay? He's wanting to prepare us. And so he's going to tell us that we are going to encounter. He's going to tell us um, we are going to fall into, we are going to stumble upon various trials. All right, that raises the question, why? Why? We talked a little bit about this last week. Why do we have trials? Why are we to count it all joy when we meet them? All right, we said it was in verse 3 last week. Let's take a look at that. Um, James 1 verse 3 says this, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. I've got um, sort of an equation on your papers. It says test trials, which are test the faith. They produce steadfastness, which produces maturity. All right, let me give you an example, a personal example. And I've told this story before. Um, it is about a time where um, my family was living in West Virginia. And my husband or my father-in-law, there is uh, some debate about that, but they were both working for the same company at the time. And one of them made the boss's son mad. And so he accused my husband of stealing and had him fired. And then we learned... Um, that if you are fired, you cannot collect unemployment, nor do people want to hire you 
uh, no matter how good you were at your job. Well, about the time that we were dealing with all of that, we also were weathering another problem. We had this rental house back in my hometown in Butler, uh, Pennsylvania, and our tenants decided that they, would, they didn't want to pay us. And so we found ourselves with two mortgages and no job, which, um, and just the, trying to be a landlord um, from a distance. And so my poor dad, we would send him down to the house and try to see if he could collect money. And he would go up and stand on the porch and knock on the door. And he would say, I could see through a window the tenants and the family watching TV, but they would never come and open the door or pay rent. So uh, that was just uh, an additional headache. Well, my husband was eventually hired back uh, by the owner and he was transferred to Columbia, South Carolina. And so he was away and I was uh, back behind with the kids trying to sell a house that wouldn't sell. And so um, one day I was walking in the neighborhood and there was uh, a lady, a gal, that would occasionally come to our neighborhood Bible studies. And I saw her outside and her husband was in the construction business. And I was concerned about what she had heard and um, I just basically didn't really want to talk about it. And so I was pretty much trying to avoid her seeing me, but she saw me and she waved hello. And so I went over um, to talk and we began to um, catch up and she did not bring up my husband at all. In fact, she brought up her husband and she said, um, my husband's cheating on me. And I said, oh no, no, your husband, your husband loves you. Um, she had an enviable marriage. Um, she was just truly crazy about the guy. And she said, no, um, he's told me he's running around with a girl at work. Now, um, she was pregnant with her fifth child. And so um, I, I did the only thing I knew to do. I said, would you like to come over tonight and we can just pray about this? And um, she said, yes. She showed up at my house and we sat at my kitchen table and I got some um, details and some more specifics about some things that were going on. And I said to her, um, I would like to pray for your husband. Um, I would like to pray for his salvation, that he would repent of his sin and turn up to Jesus Christ for salvation. And she looked at me and she said, actually, I think I need to do that. And so we spent the evening going through Bible verses about sin and salvation. And I watched her sit and pray about her own sin and her own salvation um, that night. Well, after that, the two of us started walking in the evenings. And she would talk and kind of fill me in on um, how her day and what was going on. And I would try to listen and try to interject some biblical insights. Um, we would pray. Uh, we would study God's word together. Now, my husband was living in South Carolina, so I had more time than I ordinarily would have had. Um, we would pray for her marriage. We would pray that my house would sell. We would pray that God would intervene and change her husband and change his mind. She would come over late at night and just weep, and she would say, he goes to bed and falls asleep like nothing is wrong. And so we would pray that he wouldn't be able to sleep. But he, but he did. And finally, one day, he sat those four little kids down on the couch and told them he was leaving. And they cried and they begged him not to go. And that's when things got really hard. 
She would say that it would have been easier had he died because the hurt and the rejection were unbearable. And I didn't know what to say or do. All I could do was try to encourage her and comfort her and keep her, just encourage her to hang on. That's what I did with her. And then I would make a beeline home and I would go straight to my closet and I would shut the door so the kids couldn't hear. And then I would start my tirade and I would stomp my foot. And I would say, when are you going to show up? When are you going to help? We are praying. Everything, everything has fallen apart down here. My life's fallen apart. Her life's fallen apart. And I am crying and weeping. And we are crying out for you to help. And you don't help. You don't do nothing. And by the way, I am trying to be positive with her to make you look good. I am trying to serve you, to please you. And what benefits are there? What are you doing for me? I am serving and serving and you don't do anything. Uh, that was 20 years ago. And I cringe, I cringe, I cringe, I cringe. When I think of the way I prayed and I think of the things I said, I cringe at my immaturity to think of serving God as, you know, for the benefits and for the perks. If you were to look at my prayer journals today, they would look different than the ones 20 years ago. If I were to go through something like that today, there would be differences. Now, understand, there would be crying, there would be emotion, there would be struggle, there would be pain, there would be questions, but this time, I would not suggest to God that he needs any help from me to look good to someone. No way. There's just no way. I would not suggest to him that I'm helping him out or doing him any favors by, by talking about him to my girlfriend. You know, one of the things I've learned over the years is God is the self-existent God, and he does not need me to be glorious he is glorious all by himself. He is glorious. Even if I sin, he is not less glorious. I've learned that. I've also learned a little about the providence of God and that even though I don't see anything, I know that he is working. Those are major things that I have just come to understand and, and apply now to my life. Okay, it's taken me 20 years. But it's an example of what we're seeing in this passage, and I want you to see it. Here's our next point. Number four, God has a purpose for our trials. You already know that. I just wanted it on your papers. When we studied 1 Peter... We learned how suffering can be used to put the glory of God on display. When you get to the book of James, he is going to emphasize that trials are going to be used to test the nature of your faith, to reveal the nature of your faith and test it. Here's our next point. Number five, genuine faith 
will always be tested. James says, you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. At some point, your faith is going to be tested. You can count on it. Right, that word tested, it is used to describe the way silver is refined in fire. Okay, it's the firing process determines if it's true, if it's really silver. Okay, at some point, unless you had a deathbed conversion, your faith is going to be tested. It's going to be put through the fire to determine if it's true. Someday after your conversion, you are going to fall in to some type of trial and your faith is going to be shaken to see if you hold, to see if it's true. The trials lead to the testing which reveal the genuine nature of your faith and then what does that produce? Here's our next point. Genuine faith, it produces endurance. No, no, sorry about that. Number six, genuine faith endures. Okay, it produces endurance. Genuine faith does not wither. During that 15-month season of my life, when my family was separated, I was trying to sell my house, I was trying to minister to that girlfriend, I would get up in the morning, I would get the kids off to school, and then I would race to my kitchen table and I would open my Bible and just start to cry out to God. Now, I was a Bible teacher, so I know, knew how to use a concordance. And I could have looked up all the happy verses. And I could have looked up the verses about deliverance and victory and happy endings. But I thought, no, I don't want to do that. I want to find out what God is trying to teach me, what God's trying to say to me. So I, I, I wanted the Spirit of God to be leading my study. And do you know what lesson began to emerge? Perseverance. Do you know what word I began to see every single day? Perseverance, endurance, steadfastness. I used to think if I have to read this word one more day, I'm going to scream. When do I get the rescue verses and the delivery verses? I learned that the word endurance, and I have this on your papers, in the Greek it is the word hupomone. And you might recognize hupo, that means under. We've learned a lot about that. We've studied that when we talked about submission. It means to be under something. The word mone means remain. It means abide. So endurance and perseverance has to do with you remaining under something. You abide under something. I began to realize that God was teaching me to remain, to remain faithful under the circumstances I was facing. I wanted my circumstances to change, but God was saying, what if they don't? What if they don't? Will you be faithful? What if you don't see an an immediate end in sight. Will you be faithful? Do you realize that a test of genuine Christianity is that your faith endures? 
I have some verses on your paper, and this is Jesus speaking. Luke 21, 19 says, By your endurance you will gain your lives, Matthew 10, 22. But the one who endures to the end will be saved, Matthew 24, 13. But the one who endures to the end will be saved, Mark 13, 13. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Do you see a pattern? Now, when I was first studying this, I was confused. I would think, but Lord, I'm not saved by works. I'm saved by grace through faith. Yes, yes, but if that faith is genuine, it will endure. It will endure. Turn with me in your Bibles to Luke 8. Luke 8, verse 5. This is a popular parable, and we want to remind ourselves, James is going to make constant references to the teaching of Jesus. Now, as, as you read through this, here's what I want you to watch for. Watch for pictures of withering and choking, and then examples of enduring. Okay, here we go. This is Jesus speaking. Luke chapter 8, verse 5 says this. A sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it, and some fell on the rock. And as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. And as he said these things, he called out, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their heart so that they may not believe and be saved. And the one on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy, but they have no root. They believe for a while, and in time of testing, fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear. But as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. As for that in the good soil, they are those who hear who hearing the word hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. Okay, you might want to circle that word, patience. It is our word, hupomone, perseverance, endurance. One of my greatest pet peeves is the way the teachers will use this passage and they misuse the parable. They will say it is a story about different Christians. Okay, this is not a story about different Christians. There is only one example of genuine faith in this parable. Can you tell which one it is? It's the one that perseveres and produces fruit. Okay, James, remember, he's going to be echoing and reteaching the words of Jesus Genuine faith endures and it produces fruit. All right, some of you are going to persevere 
with such grace and beauty and inspire us all. And some of you may look like me, you know, like that spoiled child having a hissy fit in Walmart. <laughs> but ultimately, you do not turn from God. Your faith endures. And I want you to notice that there is not just endurance, but fruit is produced that comes from growth. That brings us to our next point. Number seven, true believers grow. Right? Genuine faith is going to progress. It's not instantaneous. It's a process. Now, let me explain that. It's a process that will be increasing and maturing. Now, I want to give you some more definitions. The word perfect. And by the way, these are favorite words of James. We'll see them again. The word perfect, it means complete, mature. All right? And then that word complete means whole, complete in all parts. Genuine faith is going to mature and develop. Now, that may vary from person to person because we really are like snowflakes. We are all different. And so uh, that may look different, but it's going to progress. You may start out like me, uh, like I did, a very immature toddler, but you don't stay there. You move forward. Okay? That's what genuine faith is going to do. That means that you are going to be maturing in the way that you love and in the way that you forgive you're going to be maturing in the way that you show compassion and the way you show grace. It's going to mean that um, your prayer life will be maturing. Your understanding of God will be maturing. It means that you're going to know about God experientially more today than you did five years ago. When your children start to come home uh, from Bible school, or youth group, and they start telling you things like they have you know, prayed to become a Christian. Maybe they prayed with their teacher or they prayed with their youth leader. You're going to watch, want to watch for signs that it's genuine. Does it endure? Does it progress? Do they have an appetite for God and are you watching that increase? Okay, genuine faith is going to be like the Psalms describe the tree firmly planted by streams of water which yield its fruit in season and does not wither. Now, am I saying that you won't ever have setbacks or times when you feel like um, you're a complete failure or that God is very far away in distance? Okay, no, not saying that at all. James isn't saying that genuine faith does things perfectly and that you won't have setbacks. James is saying that genuine faith is tested and the testing is going to produce. All right? It's going to produce growth. It's going to produce endurance. It's going to produce maturity. All right, let's ask the investigative question, how? How are we to meet trials, trials of various kinds? We've talked about what they are, we've talked about when they occur, and we've talked about why we experience them. Let's talk about how we are to meet trials of various kinds. All right, well, first of all, let's be clear about something. Um, James is not saying that we should go out and try to cultivate trials in our lives, all right? That's not how this works. Um, you are not to purposely pursue hardships for the sake of your growth. 
Okay, remember we said verse 2, these trials were the kind that you fall into, right? You stumble into these. So, but what are we to do? How, we, how are we to meet trials? All right, verse 2, we are to count it all joy. All right, what does that mean? Because it sounds a little Pollyannish, all right? Does it mean that when trials come into a friend's life, you are to go to them and be all cheery and put on your smiley face and tell them to snap out of it? Please don't do that. Does it mean that you can't cry or mourn or sorrow when we face difficulty? Does it mean we're to put on our happy faces and enjoy the trial? Okay, no, 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 none of that. We are to count it all joy. Let's define another word. The word count or consider. It means this, to hold a view or have an opinion with regard to something. It is a word that involves careful thought, not quick decision, but a conscious judgment resting on deliberate weighing of the facts. Okay, in other words, this isn't a feeling word. Okay, this is a thinking word. Right? This is like a mathematical accounting term. Put it in the joy column. Okay, so understand you are not being commanded to feel joyful about your trials. That's not what he's saying. He is teaching us to have a heavenly view about our trials. That even though the trial itself may be awful, and out here, out of context, standing on its own, it may be horrible. Instead, we are being commanded to think and consider to put it in context and understand it in the terms of the sovereignty of God and the completion of your faith, the perfection of your faith. Okay, that's what we are to count is all joy. Not the trial, but the work that God is doing. Let me ask you, what is your view or your opinion about suffering? Your suffering. Do you see it as an opportunity to perfect your faith? Is it a heavenly view? Here's our next point, number eight. James commands us to understand trials from a heavenly perspective. Now, when God gives a command, you're usually going to be able to find some type of promise in the vicinity. And um, so how, how will we be able to count it all joy when we meet various trials? Verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generally, generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. I once sat on a plane uh, next to a fellow, and, we, and he spent um, the five hours of the flight trying to convince me to believe in a theology that I knew wasn't true. And he kept using this verse, and he assured me that if I would just ask God for the wisdom, then God would give me the wisdom to know that what he was saying was true. Okay, yeah, no, that's not how this verse works. I mean, he was taking this verse out of context. All right, in fact, um, if you're using the NAS version, it starts with the word but. Okay, this verse is connected to the previous ones. All right, so what has, what has been the context? 
trials, the testing of your faith, the maturing of your faith. This is wisdom for bearing trials. Okay? How are you to know pure joy when you are meeting various trials? Well, James answers that. He says, ask, ask God. Ask God for help. Ask God for wisdom. He is the source you are not. Ask him to help you have a heavenly view. I want to give you one last definition, and that is for the word wisdom. It is the ability to discern and conform to God's will. Wisdom is all about seeing things as God sees them. Now, next to that definition, you can write the words ultimate things, ultimate things. Wisdom helps you in understanding, it helps you in the understanding of ultimate things. Okay, it means that God has promised that when I go through a trial, he will help me to have his perspective on it. He will help me to have a heavenly view on it. He will help me to put it in the joy column. That he is going to help me to understand that this is ultimately, ultimately for my good and his glory. All right, now does that mean that he's going to explain to me um, exactly why something is happening? Does it mean that you'll quit hurting? Or that you won't have pain? Or that your circumstances will change? No, not necessarily. The promise is for something supernatural. That he will give you understanding for ultimate things. He will help you to discern and conform to God's will in the midst of the trial. And as we close, we want to notice how he gives us wisdom. It says generously and without reproach. Generously and without reproach. That means when I go to him, he doesn't say, haven't you learned anything? You were just here yesterday for wisdom. I gave you wisdom yesterday and you've wasted that. You're going to have to learn to space out your requests. Okay, listen, our God is not like that. Our God is generous. Our God is lavish. I suspect, um, I suspect uh, a problem is that we're not asking for the right thing. We want the safe room with the pillows and the hot cocoa. But God wants to grow our faith. God wants to perfect our faith. He has an ultimate goal, and it is good. And he has promised to help us understand that. Let's close with a good summary statement for this passage. Number nine, James instructs us to ask for wisdom to view our trials as joy for what God is accomplishing in our lives through them. Would you pray with me? Father God, this is a hard, hard topic. Oh, Father, would you just help us 
to react to this in a supernatural way, that we would seek the supernatural wisdom of God to understand our trials and to count them as joy. Would you give us the eyes of Jesus when it comes to our problems and our suffering? It says you will. We praise you for it. And we ask these things in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.